We're in Numbers chapter 6 tonight. I mention this often, but I think particularly in light of my morning sermon, which my wife remarked to me um, this afternoon, she said, boy, that was a doctrinal sermon. And it's a kind of a precise term, but it was a doctrinal sermon, um, a little bit more so than is my ordinary custom. So it was kind of heavy. And um, if you want my notes, just let me know, give me your email. And I think that particular sermon was like 12 pages. It's obviously not what I preached, but um, yeah. Okay, Numbers chapter 6, another interesting passage, super interesting. Numbers 6, verse 1, I think I'll read to 21. Hear the holy word of our perfect God. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on that day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day, he shall consecrate his head. He shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite. He shall bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because of his separation was defiled. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the days of his separation are fulfilled. He shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old without defect, for burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old without defect, for a sin offering, and one ram without defect a defect for a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offering and their drink offering. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord. He shall offer his sin offering, his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord. Together with a basket of unleavened cakes, the priest shall likewise offer its grain offering, its drink offering, the Nazarite that shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway at the tent of meeting, take the dedicated hair of his head, put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it was, has been boiled, one unleavened cake out of the baskets, one unleavened wafer. He shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest together with a breast offering by waving and the thigh offering by lifting up, and afterwards the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation, in addition to what else he can afford, according to his vow which he takes, 
so he shall do according to the law of his separation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word from Genesis to Revelation. We confess, Almighty God, there are some things which seem clear and pleasant and pleasing to us, and there are other things which seem a bit perplexing. Help me, Almighty God, that I might rightfully divide this word of truth to bring you glory and to edify your people by your doing, Holy Spirit. Have mercy upon us. Again, call us to see that we have been called to you, Jesus Christ, to live separated, holy, consecrated, committed lives. I glorify your name in and through your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll give you the, I'm not going to preach this way, but I will give you the divisions of this. It's just kind of the way that I think when I come to a particular passage, um, I look for um, the main doctrines, uh, the subordinate doctrines, and then I look for passage um, passage breaks. And so what you'll find is, um, in order to outline this passage, verses 1 through 8, you have the institution of the vow. This is when the vow is being made. And then the middler section, which is really interesting to me, in verses 9 through 12, uh, this is the remediation of the vow. This is God allowing for the repair of the, the vow when it's broken. And then in 13 through the end, you have the completion of the vow or the satisfaction of the vow. So the vow made, uh, the vow restored or repaired, and then the vow satisfied. That's the way that the passage breaks out. I'm going to preach it a little bit differently. Again, kind of thematically looking at it. And um, this is the only place in the scripture. Can we let that guy in the church or someone in the church trying to get in? Um, I think it's not stranger danger. I think they're okay. We have a code. I forget what it is. Uh, <laughs> run for the hills if someone looks dangerous out there. The pastor looks frightened. They don't look too dangerous to me. Um, famous last words. <laughs> this is the only place in Scripture that we have what I would call is uh, the law of the Nazarite. And in the law of the Nazarite, what we have, just kind of generally speaking, <laughs> of course they're not dangerous. It's Susanna. Um, it's the law of a man or a woman who makes a vow to God um, where they vow to be somehow separated unto uh, God for some holy purpose. So there is this vow, inward thing, outwardly expressed verbally, and then God institutes kind of the strictures of the vow and this inward desire to be committed to the, the Lord, separated to the Lord, has these outward manifestations of being under this vow. You have the business of the hair, then you have the business of the wine, and in abstaining from anything that wine is made from. So you're not even to get close to having any kind of alcoholic uh, beverage. That's the business of no seed and no skin. It's you can't even get close to anything that might smack of wine, lest you break your vow. And then obviously defiling yourself um, by touching a dead uh, body. So you, you have the inward desire, the outward expression of the vow, and then the manifestation of being under the vow with these particular physical outward uh, signs. That's what I hope to unpack tonight. And what I, I want to begin by doing is I want to define a couple terms. I want to define for us, because it's going to help us understand this, I want to define what a Nazarite is. And then the word for vow here is actually a unique uh, Hebrew word. 
And I want to look at that because it will help us understand this. It's kind of a strange passage. It's, didn't we look at a few weeks ago the test for the adulteress, the, the wife accused of adultery with that unique text, test? This is another passage you think, boy, am I, am I, why did I pick this, this book to preach through? It, it is a unique book. But when we look at the larger concepts, it's actually not that hard to understand. The word for Nazarite comes from a Hebrew root word, uh, nazir or nazar. And because the, the, my Hebrew Bible comes with vowel points, which was added later, way later, like in AD 200 by the Masoretes, group of Jews. So the way that ancient Hebrew is written is the way that modern Hebrew is written. There's no vowel points. So um, they know how it sounds because they know the word. So for us, it's either nazir or nazar, um, but it, it's a root word which means to abstain from, to consecrate oneself to. Is there an echo here? Am I hearing like, uh, can we somehow, should I get down and do this as my second job? Um, it, it's to separate oneself from, let me give us a couple um, scripture passages where this root word nazar is being used. Thanks, Victor, that, that's helping. Zechariah 7.3. Zechariah, this is speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts. And the prophet saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain, Nazir? And the, the idea is to fast from food. So there is a separation from food. And what this is in reference to is during the Babylonian captivity that the, um, the deportees would fast four times a year remembering their, their um, time of captivity. And so fast, separate oneself from food. Joseph in the Old Testament, I think 37 is where you know, the, all of the business in Genesis 37, he goes through his difficulties. But Joseph is said to have been a nazir, separated, distinguished, separated from his brothers. Genesis 49, this is the blessing of Jacob. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of his head and, and of the one Nazir separated from among his brothers. So the, the notion of the Nazarite vow is that the vower is seeking for a greater commitment to the Lord. And so when we think of that just conceptually, even though the, the passage may seem a little bit unique, when you think of that conceptually, which one of us as Christians doesn't wake up on a daily basis and say, I wish I was more committed to the Lord. I wish I was more devoted to him, that I thought of him more, that I loved him more, that I spoke of him more. So this is a, a desire on the behalf, obviously, of a believer to live a more committed, more consecrated life. We're going to do that from the moment we're born again. It's a holy dissatisfaction. Our secondary standards exegetes or explains the 10th commandment on covetousness that we're to be fully content with our outward condition. We're not to grieve at the good of our neighbor, but we're to rejoice at the good of our neighbor. But there should be a holy discontentment with sometimes our lack of progress, our lack of sanctification. Our brother talked about sanctification this morning in Sunday school. Which one of us doesn't wake up and think, when will I stop sinning? When will I do what I really want to do for the Lord and not do what I don't want to do against the Lord? So this is, a, this is the common experience 
of a belief, hopefully, that we desire greater measures of faithfulness, greater measures of commitment. There was um, our, one of our first elders here, uh, Bill Harris, and I think he and his wife were married like 60-something years. He said the longer he lives with his wife, the more and the more and the more and the more he loves her. Well, that's kind of this. The longer that we're believers, the more committed that we want to be. It's the exact opposite. You think when, as soon as you get married, it's the crescendo of the marriage experience. No, it's fun to have the Yahoo time. I'm, I'm for the Yahoo time. But, the, but the, just the love and the commitment and the desire after greater measures of faithfulness should grow in the life of a believer. That's what this Nazarite is vowing to. Uh, increased commitment to the Lord. And then, now, as I say increased commitment, I'm not going to mention the name of the preacher. He's dead and in glory now. And he was an... I, I liked him. Um, have you ever heard of the phrase higher life? Who's the woman? Uh, my, my no, Oh, what is she? Hines on the hind place or whatever she is. I forget that woman. You know who I'm talking about, right? So she was higher life. So there was a movement, higher life. It's called Keswick Convention. Keswick Convention was like 1820s to late 1800s in England. Um, so Oswald Chambers, Higher Life, it'll come to me. So Higher Life is a movement on holiness, but sanctification holiness. Not to kaiosune justification holiness, but hagios, practical mortification of sin, growing in righteousness, sanctification holiness. And so in this Keswickian movement, they had some catchphrases and if you hear a minister say it, maybe they don't know where they're getting it from, but it comes from this Keswick, this higher life movement. They'll say, you've got to totally surrender. You have to fully be committed, something like that. You Total surrender. The minister I'm thinking of in Atlanta, he's talking about full commitment, total surrender of your will, completely committed to God, something like that. And even as a young believer, I would think, well, how is it possible to have this total, 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 unreserved, total, completely total surrender. If you think you've totally surrendered, could there be a smidge that you didn't totally surrender? But these catchphrases were meant to teach this. This Keswickian convention, they taught a two-tiered form of Christianity. This is similar to some holiness movements in the Pentecostal church. So in some certain sectors, if you don't speak in tongues, maybe you're a Christian, probably not, but maybe. But if you speak in tongues, you're in fifth gear. That's very Keswickian. It's very higher life that there's the lower tier of Christian, which would be me, and you're kind of mucking along, and maybe you're doing some things for the Lord, but probably too much flesh, and you're just not really being led by the Spirit. Then the people that make a full commitment to the Lord they are the ones being spirit-led and spirit-filled and spirit-directed. Those are the truly spiritual Christians. Beloved, I don't think that's orthodox. I do, I do not believe in a two-tiered form of Christianity because um, I, I want to see the person in the second tier and then I just need to watch them for about five minutes and I know they're in the first tier with everybody else. <laughs> so I'm not picking on them. So, but what we're looking at, this, so there is an unorthodox desire for a total commitment. Or, I think the desire would be correct, but the methodology would be wrong. Um, you are doing something to get yourself to this second place. That would be unorthodox. The part which is completely orthodox is the desire of the Nazarite. 
It, it is completely biblical, completely within the bounds of true truth that we as Christians should desire increased measures of, um, when we say we want a deeper commitment with the Lord, what we're asking for is a greater experience of communion with the Lord. So when we believe, we repent and believe, we're united to God in Christ. There's the union. From the union flows the communion, the friendship. I mentioned marriage. The longer you're married, the closer friends you will be with your spouse. This is the same thing. So this Nazarite wants a closer communion. What's that hymn? A closer walk, a little closer, a little closer, closer walk with thee. This is a desire after closer communion with the Lord God. Utterly, utterly biblical. Um, now, when we look at this word to separate, to consecrate, clearly the notion of this Nazarite vow is it's the concept of holiness. Now, beside the better part of the modern church doesn't preach the Old Testament, I don't think, the way I don't think, um, at least percentage-wise. Uh, the concept of holiness is not a crowd pleaser, particularly the sanctification holiness, practical dying to sin, practically being committed to, to God and his cause. Holiness is not a crowd pleaser. Taking over America, having a flush bank account, crown life. I, I'm not against having a flush bank account. I'm, I'm for all of those things of being healthy and all those good. I'm for all of those things. But if you were to preach a series on that, I'd have 500 people in the church. If you were to preach a series on holiness, <laughs> you have two people in a house cat. But the Bible talks a lot about holiness. This Nazir to be separated from and separated for is a holiness vow. This is a promise to be increasingly devoted in a holy fashion, to live holily. That's the whole business of not touching the dead. Picture of unclean, picture of sin. Uh, in the wine, being able to discern right from wrong, clean from unclean. So this, this, this Nazarite vow clearly has the meaning of um, holiness. Um, the Bible says, Leviticus 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be what? Holy. Again, this is not pharisaical. So this call to be holy like our Lord, it can be pharisaical. And usually the way that it works is, I am holy and you are not because I can find your sin. That's wrong. This is a call for all of us who, who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from our sins, to, to not live in our sins, and who have been saved to, to live holily, to live holily. And so this, this Nazarite is taking a vow of increased practical holiness unto God and unto man. Um, you, you would be called a legalist instantly. The moment you, 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 you say, I, I just want to be consecrated to God. I want to devote my eyes to only holy use, my, my ears and my mouth only for holy use. Even from the church, you'll be considered a legal, you'll be considered a kook. But this is what this fellow or this gal is vowing to. Now, let me show us, there's really something very unique. I'm loving, I'm loving preparing these sermons for uh, the book of Numbers because I'm learning so much, though it is, it's pretty strange, some of them. There's a comparison between the Nazarite and the high priest. It's almost a one-to-one. -one. It's very unique. 
And so when we look at this comparison, it starts to shed light on what this vow is all about. So as the high priest is, in a very similar way, same strictures, same strictures being applied from God to the, to the high priest and to the, uh, to the Nazarite. And I'll show you all three that we look at. And, and there are similarities and they teach the same. Con- so th- think high priest. Who is the ultimate high priest? Psalm 110. It has Christ as the high priest. This is the book of Romans. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our high priest. And so, in a way, when we look at the high priest, we know that we're ultimately looking at Jesus. As the high priest is, we are to be a reflection of him. We have the Nazarites are to be a reflection of the high priest. We, Christians, people ought to be able to look at us, and this is amazing, and see, wow, that person is in union and communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ because they're holy. They're separated. You see that? Let me show you the three things. So the first thing is um, the forbidden wine. So I, I will just tell you, this is, this is just an aside. I, am, I abstain from alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. Now, if it's the Lord's Supper, I drink alcohol in the Lord's Supper. But that's a, I make distinction. I don't drink alcohol because I'm three-quarters Irish, and I, I don't have a chromosome that makes it, and I'm just JK. It, it, it's bad for me. So I'm not a fundamentalist, though I, I suppose I love fundamentalists. I love all Christians. But I don't, I don't drink alcohol because I think alcohol is sin. I think if you can drink alcohol within reason and not get drunk, it's for sure not a sin. But it's dangerous for me. So when I come to this particular passage, when we look at the abstinence from alcohol, the high priest was forbidden from drinking any alcohol uh, when he was doing his duties. This is a Leviticus, um, t- chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. This is a Nadab and Abihu. They offered what before God? Strange fire. And then if you read to the end of Leviticus uh, 10, you'll see around about verse 9 or 10, God says, now go tell the boys, the, the remaining two sons, because Aaron had four and two died, and because they were drunk on the job. And he says, I, I don't want you to drink alcohol while you are performing your priestly services so that you will be able to discern clean from unclean. And what does clean from unclean stand for? Sin versus righteousness. So it, it, I, I know that we have liberty. So if you are a liberty person, good on you. Be careful not to turn your liberty into license. Every once in a while I meet a liberty, oh, I'm free to drink a gallon of wine. I don't think you are. So the notion is, if you drink a gallon of wine, will you be able to discern clean from unclean? No, you won't. And to quote Charles Spurgeon, who wasn't a teetotaler either, I don't think, he said one of the difficulties with alcohol is it's a gate unto many other sins. Many other sins. Many years ago when I went to a jail, and I was in a jail. I wasn't. I went to a jail for another reason. But I was in the jail, and the guy leading this group that I was in said, "How many of you guys are in here because you got drunk and did something stupid?" And every young guy raised their hand. So the next time someone says, "Hey, you can drink a gallon of wine," yeah, and you might do something stupid because you can't discern clean from unclean and end up in the clink. So as the priest was forbidden to drink alcohol, the Nazarite was forbidden to be able to discern clean and unclean. 
Now, there are some men, when they come to the don't drink alcohol, there's a place in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, my liberty guys. I love liberty guys, but you know who you are if you're a liberty guy. I've got liberty to, blah, 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 I got liberty. I went to school with all these guys. And so th- there's a place in the book of uh, Proverbs. Wine makes the face what? Is it Proverbs or Psalms? Wine makes the face what? You know, glad. This is like their pet verse. Wine makes the face glad, meaning like I get to drink a gallon. Oy vey. So the, the men that think that, that this is not necessarily to discern clean from unclean, they would say what this is, is an ascetic vow. And this is where our flesh gets nutty. You're going to flagellate yourself, wear a hair shirt. But if that's correct, if God is requiring this man to separate himself from some earthly pleasure in order to devote himself to increase religious service, if that's true, it's, it, it is for that. Separation from one thing, earthly pleasure, in order to devote oneself more fully to religious service. I preached a sermon that I think a number of homeschool moms wanted to cut my throat out. I preached a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on the blessedness of singleness. <laughs> they thought, you're against marriage. My little buttercup wants to get marriage. I'm like, lady, I promise you, I'm not against marriage. Paul says if you stay single, it's better because you have more time and energy to devote to the Lord, if you can handle it. it. That's like this. You're separating from one. That's the ascetic part so that you can devote more time to the Lord's service, if that makes any sense. So you have the separation from the wine, same from the high priest to the Nazarite. And the second um, uh, thing here is I, I want us to see is regarding the head. Now, the difference is the, the high priest was not told to not cut his hair. But the notion is that in the text, it says their head is consecrated. There's something holy about the head. And that's the very same with the high priest. The high priest's crown or the high priest's head is holy to the Lord. The Nazarite's head, his hair, holy to the Lord. And then the, the business of that the, the, the high priests were forbidden from defiling themselves by touching a dead person, same, even the closeness of kin. And the notion is that this person who's making this vow is totally separated from anything that makes them unclean. There's a complete separation from uncleanness. Now, again, this is the desire. Is it possible for us to be completely separated from anything that defiles us? Yes, it is totally possible. You know how it's possible? John's gone. He's in heaven. (laughs) We have to die to get there. Because as long as we live here, the world, the flesh, and the devil, even in God's providence, if someone dies, they defile. That shows that sometimes even though the desire is to be utterly consecrated in this holy fashion, In God's providence, sometimes we cannot perform our vow. And I'll talk about that in just a bit. But the notion is that this Nazarite is separated from anything which makes unclean, which is a reference to sin. Again, it's it's teaching the larger idea, consecrated to God, committed to God, committed to a life of holiness, is what this um, passage is uh, teaching. Now, I'm just going to say, I won't spend a lot of time here, The Bible records for us four men that were Nazarites or took a Nazarite vow. Two in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. And the first guy that I'm going to reference, you'll see, so this is a holiness vow. We're going to live committed to the Lord. 
And the first guy that we see is a Nazarite is Samson. Was Samson, Samson was a Nazarite from birth, so he was going to be a Nazarite his whole life. Does being a Nazarite stated to be devoted to the Lord, does that equate with a sinless life? No. What weakness did uh, Samson have? The Nazarite, the holy, separated, consecrated Nazarite. What weakness did he have? The devil has like one or two lures, and the Puritans would say one lure works really well for most men. He doesn't have to be really tricky. He uses it all the time. It's worked for a long, long time, and it worked on Samson, and it works on a lot of other guys. You know what that lore is? Women. Women. Samson would be walking around. Here he is, Mr. Devoted to the Lord. He would see the Philistine woman. I don't know if they looked radically different than the Israelite women, but he saw the foreign women and said, Shazam, look at that foreign woman. And he would say to his dad and mom, she looks what to me? Good. (laughs) She looks good to me. Get her for me. And then eventually he ends up with Delilah. And then you know the whole account with Delilah. Tell me how we can bind you and kill you and do all it. Okay. And then he gives away the secret. And then you see his consecration and the special powers that God gave him, they go away. It cost him his freedom. What else, what else did it cost him? It cost him his eyes. And ultimately it cost him his life. But he, he, he restored himself at the end of it. So you have Samson. And who is the other Old Testament? This is a passage. I'm not picking on any Baptist. I was a Baptist for a long time. I love Baptists. If it wasn't for Baptists, we'd never have a church. But what was the, there's a passage that Baptists use who, who don't like infant baptism. And because it's not a New Testament passage, but they use an Old Testament passage for dry baby baptism. You know this one? This is Samuel. <laughs> Samuel is devoted to the Lord. That's dry baby baptism. It's a use of an Old Testament text in a New Testament concept just like us. But I digress. Samuel, so his wife, his, his mother, Hannah, she's the one of the, she's the second wife. Only one. God's, God, God was, his plan was monogamy. Polygamy never works. Only one. So he has two. Is it Elkanah? He has two. And the, the other one picks on poor Hannah because she doesn't have a baby. And so she prays, oh God, if you give me a boy, I will devote him. Uh, a razor won't touch his head, no wine. He'll be a Nazarite. So Samuel was a Nazarite. So we have, um, uh, what is Samson? Samson's a judge. He's a form of deliverer. A deliverer is consecrated unto God. Again, Christological import. Then we have, what's Samuel? Samuel's a prophet. What do prophets do? They reveal the will of God unto God's people for our salvation by the word of God. They are consecrated. Now we come to the New Testament. What New Testament character do you know that came preaching Jesus Christ as the forerunner who was also a Nazarite? John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth. He was a Nazarite his whole life. And then we looked at this morning in our passage, the Apostle Paul was not a lifelong Nazarite, but he took a Nazarite vow. That's the business of the cutting the hair and the going to Jerusalem and so on. It was a Nazarite vow. So these are the four men that show us um, this notion of being consecrated, dedicated, separated, committed unto uh, the Lord. Now, the word vow here is a unique Hebrew word. It's pala. I, I butcher the Greek. I butcher the Hebrew more, more than I butcher the Greek, but it's pala. And, and what the word means is literally 
wonderful or something wonderful, which why is, is why some of your texts may say special vow, or some other translation will say a great vow. The notion is something unique, uh, something dif- difficult, something extraordinary. So the vower is going to abstain from ordinary life, as it were, in order to engage in extraordinary service unto the Lord. Um, Let me say something very briefly about about the notion of oaths and vows. I'll just say this. This will be in my notes if you get the email. Chapter 22 of our confession uh, deals with oaths and vows. An oath is calling God as a witness. An oath is calling God as a witness. A vow is a promise unto God or another human being to perform some action or service. So when when the Apostle Paul, this is why I used to believe that oaths and vows were illegitimate in the New Testament, and I'm going to interact with that in just a bit until some Christians showed me a more excellent way. The Apostle Paul put himself under oath all the time. He would say, I call God as a witness. That's an oath in New Testament context. And then the Lord Jesus Christ put put himself under an oath or received an oath being put upon him when the high priest said, I abjure you by the name of the living God. That's an oath that Christ accepts. So there there is biblical precedent for New Testament um, oaths and vows. But a vow is a promise of special service unto God or to a person. Let me give us some uh, vows from uh, the Bible. Jacob, Genesis 28. Jacob made a vow saying, If God be with me and I keep me on the journey that I take and will give me food to eat and my garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord God will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be, will be God's house and, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. God's house in Hebrew is Beth El. Beit is house, El is God. So he says the house is Beit El, house of God. And then obviously the second vow is Hannah. Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest, this is the two boys that get um, killed and he breaks his neck, Eli. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah, being greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly because her opponent, which was the the other wife, was abusing her. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. So Hannah takes a Nazarite vow for his son lifelong. But think of the idea of a, a... a separation from the ordinary and a separation unto the special. I'm going to just reference this because it's mixed company and I, I don't want to kind of cross the lines of impropriety. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about the use of the marriage bed and so on and conjugal uh, things. And he, he says regarding that, and you see snippets of this concept, separation from the ordinary for engagement in something special. It says the only time that husbands and wives should uh, agree not to to be intimate is to take a break from the ordinary is to engage in something special, which means a special time of prayer. It's this very same idea. So mostly the Nazarites were not lifelong Nazarites. This was just the ordinary believer that says for a time, 
I'm going to turn away from my ordinary course of life and I'm going to devote myself for a time to a more committed life of service, if that makes any sense. And that's what we're, we're looking at uh, here. Now, one of the things that we see in this particular um, vow, the man making a vow, is um, what I would call both the providence of God towards the vower and the grace of God towards the vower. There's that middle section of the remediation of the vow, how to repair the vow. The person says this, I promise, O God, I'm going to perform this service and such and so and such and so. I promise. And I won't break my vow by taking wine or the dead person. And then God says, well, suppose your mother or your father dies during this time. I want you to think of this. God forbids the son or the daughter to do their, their, their duty, we talked about duty to God, Trump's duty to man this morning, forbids them, if they're under this vow, to touch the body of their parent, which would be obedience to the fifth commandment. And if they did so, they would break their vow, and then they'd have to have their vow repaired. But one of the other things it says, if someone dies suddenly, and here, this is something that I think we, we, should, we, we should understand. Many people promise to do many things. I have, I have officiated at 37, 38 funerals. Um, I've got my mother on the brain today. Today's my mother's, it would have been my mother's 81st birthday today. She's been dead almost two years. So I've got my mom on, on the brain. I think my mother was the last funeral that I officiated at. So maybe 37, 38. But maybe like 10 marriages I've done. Many marriages start off. I suppose all marriages start off this way. I promise. You are for me. And then someone says something like this, a species of this anyway, way, till something, till something. <laughs> till death, I think. And then someone comes and says, Pastor, can we talk? And I say, oh, what's going on? I'm going to cash it in. <laughs> Am I going to a funeral? No, you're not going to a funeral. I'm going to the, the courthouse. A lot of people start off with, I promise, I promise. And then for whatever reason, they don't. So when we look at this fellow, God is saying, if providentially you are unable, I, w- I will restore you to your place. Beloved, let's not be too, too hard. Par- kids are, I suppose kids are hard on their, parent, their grown parents. Maybe, maybe parents are harder on their kids. I don't know. But I know sometimes kids grow up and they send you the 40-page letter and say, you know, you promised me a kite when I was a kid and you never got me. So sometimes we make promises that we can't keep. And I know I'm a man of my word and my word is my bond. Oh, boy. Oh, don't even start me on that. What happens? You get hit by a bus. You can't. You can't talk. You can't walk. You can't move. You're dead. You didn't do the promise. Are you not a man of your word? No. God providentially hindered you. So our promises, our intentions, are always under the government of an utterly sovereign God. I'm not talking about a rash vow. I'm not talking about blowing off every promise because we just don't feel like it. I'm talking about you fully intend to walk committedly with the Lord in this vow and God has a dead person fall on you. He doesn't say you're innocent. He says, I will repair the vow. 
And so we rely upon the providence of God for everything. And the other thing we see in this remediation business is, this is really funny. When I was a kid in the Roman Catholic Church, the way that they passed the hat for the money is they had a basket on a stick. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you ever seen this? So they have a big long stick, a six or seven foot tall stick, and the guys would run it down the aisle. And so we sat, we didn't have comfortable chairs, no comfortable chairs when I was a kid. <laughs> we sat in wooden pews and no kids went anywhere. There was no, back then there were a family integrated church because that was church. <laughs> and now it's like a thing, but back then it was just actually church. So all of us kids would be sitting there and my father would give us each a quarter. So he gave us to give. That's this. We so I'm going to give to the Lord's service. And God says, here, I'm going to give you the ability. And here, when you mess up and you're not able to, I'm going to restore the ability. God is like my father. Like He gives so we can give. This is grace. What happens when I fail? I'll restore it. Did he say you can earn it back? No, he doesn't say. He says, I will, I will make it. I will make a way. That, that's grace. Um, oh boy, I don't want to get myself on a, on a tirade. But, so we have that. We have the business of um, the providence of God towards the vower, the grace of God towards the vower. And then in these particular vows, now I understand, in, the new, in this particular uh, context of the book of Numbers, we're either dealing with, and we've mentioned this before, this is a confession of faith, chapter 19. We're either dealing with the judicial law of God or the ceremonial law of God. I tend to think the ceremonial. So the judicial law of God has been um, abrogated with the doing away of the temple. And then the ceremonial law has been fulfilled with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this particular vow is not directly ap- applicable, maybe conceptually, but, but not in actual practice. Um, but when we come to this particular vow, it is an expression of religious worship. Sometimes us Christians, we talk about, like, what kind of worship do you all have at the church? When someone says that, what do they mean? What kind of music? Do you have a guitar, a bongos, or, 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 or a piano? But that's too narrow a view of worship is not just what we do on the Lord's Day. When you wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Jesus, for arms and hands, and thank you for my wife, thank you for my kids, thank you for my job, that's worship. Our whole life is to be service to, to God. But when this man makes a vow or this woman makes a vow, it's an aspect of worship. And we actually believe as Reformed Christians that there are occasions, Thanksgiving Day historically in this country was a day of religious worship. It would have to be a special separation to God. It's the same idea with vows. In the New Testament epoch, I think vows should be very seldom and very solemn business. And I've said this before, Next to your commitment to Jesus Christ, your marriage vow is the greatest vow you will ever take on the planet. Which is why when I hear marriage vows, I almost want to pass out. Because you think, but by the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that will sustain marriages. But when we come here, that's what this is. It's an aspect of uh, worship. Now, I want to address what I mentioned earlier. What do we do when Jesus says, don't take any oaths? What do we do with that? Here we are with a vow and an oath passage. Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or on earth, it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. 
but you shall make, uh, nor shall you make an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair, white or black, but let your statement be yes or no. Anything beyond this is of evil. James, who is the Lord's half-brother in James 5.12, he reiterates what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. James says in 5, we count those blessed who endure. You have heard the endurance of Job. You have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion, is merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So what's the reconciliation? The reconciliation is both Christ and his half-brother James They're speaking against rash or flippant vows. People do this all the time. I swear to God, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. I vow to God I will do this. That's what Christ is prohibiting. Christ is clearly not prohibiting something which is illegitimate because he puts himself under an oath. The Apostle Paul puts himself under oath. He calls God his witness. So that's the reconciliation. Christ is against flippant or rash oaths or vows, not against legitimate ones. And this is a legitimate one. There's, other, there's one other point that I had a hard time with this, and I thought about it and thought about it. You know where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, so when this man takes a vow, and he doesn't cut his hair, he's not drinking wine, and he won't touch a dead body even for his family, can you see that? This is religious worship that you can see. Doesn't Jesus prohibit outward shows of religious devotion. Does he not prohibit that? And I would say yes and no. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Then he says, um, Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Then it says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they loved and stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners so that they may be seen from men. So here we have the Bible in number six says, I want you to worship God in this outward visible way. You're going to see it. People say, that's a Nazarite. Now, what could potentially happen to the Nazarite? The Nazarite is a believer, let's say, and he still has the flesh. Wow. You're a Nazarite, your collar is white and you have a sash and everything is wonderful and you call your reverend, oh wow, you're so amazing. And the person does what? Yes, that's right, I'm I'm a Nazarite, I guess. Who can say I'm so holy? That's what Christ is speaking against. If you're taking the Nazarite vow so you can walk around, it's the exact opposite. But Christ does bring in the fact that there are people that think religion is the best way for people to think really highly of them. And if you're using your religious devotion as like, look, look at me, there's no no credit to you. But the idea of not doing any kind of external Christianity so that we would not be seen is not prohibited by Matthew 6. Because that would put us in in opposition to a great many many other clear Bible truths. What do I mean? Don't forsake the gathering together, as some do. Hebrews 10. Well, you have to go to church. And so when you go to church, who is going to see you? The other people that go to church. And we're all worshiping. So when someone says, no, you can never show someone that you're outwardly devoted to Jesus. Well, that's ridiculous. (laughs) 
This is ridiculous. How are you going to sing corporately? What's heaven going to be like? We're all going to be looking at one another. This is against using our religious devotion to have people think highly of us. That's a Pharisee. That's a classic Pharisee. And then at the house, he takes the mask off and puts the, the, the religious devotion in the back shelf and goes back to watching whatever he watches on WW Don't Watch. That's the, that's the, that, that's the Pharisee who's a complete hypocrite. And this, this is the person who says, I, I, I want to be devoted to God. Beloved, I just want us to see from just this the thematic sermon that our God in Christ has called us. Was, I forget who's the guy who wrote it. Gerhardus Voss. He wrote a treatise, The Separated Life. This is the 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. For us as Christians, I know we can grow our hair. I, I don't have enough hair to grow anyways. I'm, just, I'm doing the swirl technique and all of those things. We're separated by God, for God, unto Christ, unto holiness. Our whole lives are to be a, 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 devoted to God, co- to, committed to God for his glory. And he, he, it's, it, it's a gift. And this is what this particular Nazarite vow is teaching us. And I pray that we would all, as we hear these things and ponder these things and pray on these things, I pray that we would all increasingly be committed to Christ, his cause, his people, for his glory and our own joy. Uh, May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.